Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If jazz is America's first great cultural export to the world, hip-hop is its second and perhaps most important. From its earliest days emerging from DJ and MC battles in the South-South Bronx, the rise and growth of hip-hop music and culture has been exponential. And today there is no corner of the globe where hip-hop has not taken root, often in surprising ways. Originally born from the grinding experience of 1970s urban American life, today's hip-hop is a true creolization of culture mutating and transforming itself as it's constantly reinvented by its new fans and practitioners. There are few who are as important in the history of hip-hop as Robert Diggs, known to the world as RZA from Wu-Tang Clan. The main producer for most of the Wu-Tang's albums, RZA is also an MC, a student of world religions and meditation, a practitioner of the martial arts, and a chess player. Chess has long been intertwined with hip-hop culture and the Black American experience, from the barbershop, like the run, uh, like the one run by my friend Jerome Helm here in Omaha, you can see him in the January issue of the Chess Life uh, magazine in the Faces column, uh, all the way to the halls of academia, as shown by my old colleague Dr. Tommy J. Curry in his 2008 article "Hip Hop Tactics." You can find that in the Philosophy Looks at Chess volume, edited by Ben Hale, uh, where my Gary Kasparov is a cyborg article can also be found. Uh, if you're interested, at Google will find it at philpapers.org. What becomes apparent when reading Riz's books like The Tao of Wu, and when reading this month's Chess Life cover story, written by our guest Adiza Bajoko, is that chess and hip-hop are tied together, and that chess can be much more than the staid, sanitized enterprise we sometimes limit ourselves to in our imagination. We saw part of that in The Queen's Gambit, a topic that Adiza talked about at length in a recent podcast episode, number 141 of The Bishop's Chronicles, We see a lot more of it in the interview, which ties chess to spirituality, the martial arts, and diet, to veganism, and to tea. It's a very different vision of our game than the hegemonic image would indicate, and I think it's a vision that we all might do very well to consider these days. Adiza the Bishop, the Bishop, (laughs) Benjoko, is a author, an educator, and the founder of the Hip Hop Chess Federation. Adiza, thank you for taking time to talk to U.S. Chess. How are you doing? And where are you? Uh, thank you for having me. First of all, this is an honor. Um, it's gonna—I don't know, man. I—I I, um, when I when I started working on Hip Hop Chess Federation, I never thought I'd be doing this at all. Truly, it's great. It it feels it feels good. You well, know, truly. I'm I'm excited to have you here. I've I've known about your work for a long time, and uh, I'm super excited to see what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, no, I'm good right now. I am in the United Kingdom. I was I was in London, um, but the COVID strain was pretty rampant and getting crazy. So I am now in Leeds, about uh, a couple hundred miles north, 
And uh, it's pretty crazy, bro. It's pretty crazy. But, um, you know, I mean, I, 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 I believe in the end it'll all pan out, whatever that means. So, so why did you head to England in the first place? And uh, why now are you in Leeds, which uh, that's in northern, in northern England, yeah. right? And uh, yeah, they, they, yeah, got a, yeah. they got a football team right now, which is uh, that's right. quite, a, quite, quite a sight to see. I mean, they just they don't play defense. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. I it's funny too because when I was young, I actually played soccer, and um, when my son was young, I coached soccer uh, for several years, and we were a devastating squad, weren't we? Devastating kids. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, and so, uh, what brought me to London was to finish a book that I'm working on. I'm working on a book called um, "A Dead Man's Diary." And it's a, it's a weird book. It's a, it's a book about a near-death experience that I had in 2018 where I almost uh, bled to death from a, a bacterial infection that I did not know I had. And so it was causing me to faint and all this stuff. In any case, I, um, I had a profound experience while uh, waiting to die. And it brought me a lot of clarity. And so my book is about the clarity that I got from that experience. Um, also, you know, they talk about like when you almost die, like your life flashes before you. Um, it's an autobiography. It's an autobiography of sorts where I'm kind of when that happens, what does that mean? What do you remember? Who do you remember? Right. And how does your personal sense of identity change with your experiences? So I'm here to finish that book. I'm almost done with it. I uh, I think we're going to get into that a little bit when we talk about the interview. But I, I, yeah. if we don't, I want to get back to this because yeah. um, I, I think the way that the the interview that you did with Riza it sort of ties so many so many threads together in interesting and uncommon ways. And the spiritual yeah. part of it is something I really do want to talk about. But cool, before absolutely. we get there, um, yeah. let's 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 talk a little bit about your history and and, and how this interview came to be. So. Um, how did, how did this, this interview get booked? How did, how did Chess Life come to learn about your affiliation and, uh, your, your, your relationship with Rizet and, and how did we come to get this in, in our, in our magazine? It's, it's really crazy. I mean, to rewind it all the way to the beginning, when I started HHCF in 2006, um, I had been pursuing Josh Waiskin like really bad, but he wasn't calling me back. And then once the book, my book at that time, which is called Lyrical Swords Volume 2, uh, Hip Hop and Poly, no, uh, Lyrical Swords Volume 2, West Side Rebellion was done. I had interviewed Riza, I had interviewed Jizza, and I really wanted him because I was, I was putting this idea together, but I hadn't quite congealed it, you know? And um, he responded to me. He was like, hey man, sorry, I didn't hit you back. I was traveling, blah, blah, what's up? And so we started the dialogue and then I had met Riza through a few people, but one of them was Sway and Tech from the Wake Up Show, a radio show, uh, mm-hmm. popular hip hop show. And so me and Riza connected, bam, and it was really, it was really clear that that we were gonna vibe. So we did some stuff, and I think they first started reaching, and then and then and then Josh Waitzkin introduced me to Jen Shahadi. And I think that's kind of how the initial stuff happened. Over the years, I was lucky enough to be in 2012, I think, on the cover of of, of Chess Life, and, and which was unbelievable. Um, and um, and then uh, recently, you know, I had I had I had come out to London um, where I was already doing some of my writing earlier in the year in February, and uh, I was like, man, you know, um, I want to do something really really big this year for, for hip hop and chess, but I don't know what that is. I just, you know, it's a random thought. And then, um, I, I, 
I went to this thing called Camp Tazo that RZA had had hosted um, in in New York, also in February. And I was like, man, you know what? I really want to do a cover story. And so I, I reached out to Dan. Dan reached out to you. And we all started talking. And then we got a story, a cover story done, man. And uh, I'm juiced. It's, um, I think... It- it's a bit of a departure for our magazine and big know, departure, but that's what I like about it um, <laughs> yeah. is that it's, and as, as we're going to talk about, you know, th- there is, there is a lot more to chess than what we see on chess 24. And, and I love chess 24 and I, I love, yeah. you know, I mean, I love watching Magnus play against Takaru and, but that is not the end all be all of chess. And I think the more we can show that that's not, that's not all there is to the chess world that I think the no. better off we're going to be. Right. So, Agreed. so how did you see, so, so you, you got to know Rizzo over the years and mm-hmm. then this interview came along and let, let's talk about, let's talk about the interview itself, because as, as I think we both are trying to indicate this, this is something that will surprise our readers, I think. Um, yeah. What did you guys talk about and, and why do you think that's so important for them to read? Well, um, what we talked about was how chess is kind of influenced his music and the way he makes music. Right. We talked about, um, his personal growth in chess, like what, you know, when he's playing and getting better, what is he doing? How, how, you know, what specific things does he do to improve himself at chess? Right. Um, and he talks about, you know, uh, a relationship that he had with Emery Tate, rest in peace, um, that we both had. Uh, we met Emery Tate through, uh, Daim Shabazz, um, of the chess drum, which, which is such an important thing. If you're going to read about, you know, uh, African and African-American contributions to, to, you know, the chess space and, and the different cultural ebbs and flows. So shout out to Daim. And so he connected, uh, us to Emory as I remember it. And Emory came in and participated in a game against RZA at one of our early events called mind over matter. So we kind of talk about that. He kind of explains, um, things that, that Emery taught him about chess, um, and things of that nature. Then we kind of move toward, I think, I think we talk a little bit about veganism and meditation. Cause that is one of the main ways that RZA actually influenced me personally. I was, I was meditating, I think a few years after I met RZA, but it's my friendship with RZA that, that made it more through that meditation came to me more through that. Um, and, uh, it's a very, and, and we talk about, man, just crazy stuff, man. I, it, it, I'm sure it's unusual for, for some of the more traditional like chess life readers, but it's also a glimpse into the many ways that chess impacts us in the rest of our lives. Like, right. Like I, I, I have always been someone who believed that, um, it is important to know yourself and know the game beyond the limit of your rating. That has, that has been a very big thing. Like I see young kids, like I remember, you know, uh, seeing kids completely crying at tables after, after a tournament. Right. And, and their parents upset with them. Right. Because like, they're not going to get the rating or da, 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 da. I understand like the parent just paid all this money for this dude to help this kid get better. And then the kid loses or whatever, but like, we got to make sure that the kids know that this is the thing that will enrich them beyond their rating. And so that's hopefully what we accomplished in the, uh, in, in the article. Yeah. I want to, I want to focus on this a little bit because when I was listening to some of the podcasts you've done for the, for the Bishop's Chronicles, um, you often talk about um, the real life of the people. 
and how yeah. that can be contrasted with um, the sort of official or sort of san- you know sanitized image of chess, right? The right. I think you called it the modern chess community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yeah. I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because you know anyone who is listening to this who's who has been involved with scholastic chess knows right. exactly what you're talking about. The kids who they track their rating, you know, almost to, to the point. They, right, they, right, they know right. when they're going to get to a thousand or they know what they'll lose if they, or, you if know, they, if they don't come up, right. Or they'll just keep offering a draw because they don't want to lose any rating points. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that's not healthy. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, here's the deal to, to, you know, cause I also, I also, you know, um, um, up until COVID, I was teaching, I was the head instructor of chess and jujitsu at Zaytuna College, which is a college here in Berkeley, California. Well, I'm not in Berkeley, California, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I taught chess and jujitsu at, at, at Zaytuna College, right? And, um, you know, when you are a competitive jujitsu player, oh, it's different than like, hey, I just like jujitsu. Oh, yeah, competitive jujitsu is going to be a little grimier, right? Competitive chess, oh, it's going to be grimier. Right. Then just like, hey, I'm with my friends at school or, you know, we're at the house or even in the street. Competitive chess is a different level of the game. Um, And and I acknowledge that. And I think that that is important for everyone to know. Right. However. Whether you're competitive in it or not, defining your whole identity through that number. Right. Or through your belt ranking. Right. Or through how you did in that tournament and you on the mat. Or 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 in a, in a scholastic chess tournament is not the whole of who you are. That's just a fact. That's not who you are. It's an aspect of who you are. It is an aspect of who you can be, what you can achieve. But it is not the defining um, litmus test of any of that. And I think that sometimes in the modern chess community, that the focus on that rating, especially where kids are involved. This I'm not talking about adults, obviously, right? But like, especially where kids are involved. Um, can be um it can be harmful man just quite frankly i think it can be harmful to their sense of self but more than almost more than their sense of self it can be it can be harmful to the love that they have for the game and they need that love to stay in the game exactly right i was just recently talking with someone he reached out to me from uh denver and he was like hey i'm getting ready to start teaching kids do you have any advice for me and i said yes uh make sure they love it don't Worry about who wins or loses. Don't, you know, celebrate some kid who wins too much and what. Make sure that they love the game and they have fun. From that place, anything is possible. If you can't have them fall in love with the game, like the game, enjoy the game with their friends, with their grandma, with their uncle, with their grandpa, whoever, all things come from there. If they don't do that, everything else is a wash. Ain't no life lessons. I can't teach you a life lesson about a game you hate. Man, chess sucks. I can't teach you nothing now. Yeah. I need it to be fun. That's, I need you to come to this board on your own volition, of your own curiosity, of your own passion, of of your own hopes, right? And from there, everything is possible. That's one of the things that I've always tried to impress upon parents when I've I've worked with kids is that mm-hmm. I tell them, I say, look, my job here is not to make your kid a chess champion. My right. kid, is, you know, my job is not to to make sure they're going to bring home trophies or, or get them something on their college resume. My job is to inculcate a love for chess in them. So that 50 years from now, wherever they are in the world, they can sit down on a chessboard and feel at home. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you see it all the time. Kids that were murdering people for months, years, whatever, king of their area, whatever. And then one day, whatever happened to Fred? Dude, Fred is gone. I don't know. He just quit. 
right? Whatever, whatever happened to Sarah, man? Sarah was like, she was the one. I thought, yeah, Sarah's out. You know what I mean? And that's because um, I think the love gets smothered out by the desire to com- be competitive and, and, and be defined by their rating. And I think that that is one of the single most dangerous elements of the competitive chess world, specifically where kids are involved. Right. And I'm just, you know what I mean? I'm speaking about youth because I deal with youth more than anybody else. Right. But yeah. You know what I mean? I, um, w- what I've been impressed with when I've been, you know, reading up on you and, and trying to get ready for this is that it, it looks in many ways like your career is an extended attempt to work through this idea to, yes. to, to try to create a, a community where something like chess can flourish, but but chess used as a tool for self improvement and self betterment. And so I, I kind of want yeah. I want to walk through some of these things with you and and, and sort of sure. talk to you about about what you've done and where you've been. Um, let, let's start with the Hip Hop Chess Federation because sure, uh, most people if they have heard your name they will have heard it in association with this. Uh, so tell us about the history of the Hip Hop Chess Federation. <laughs> Why did you start it and and what's its status right now? So. Um, the Hip Hop Chess Federation was an org that I started in 2006 with a guy named Leo Liberon. He helped me found it in the beginning. Um, and quite frankly, it was because from in 1987, 88, I heard lyrics from Public Enemy, no matter what the name, we're all the same, pieces in one big chess game. And um, EPMD, uh, I think it's your customer. I'm in a battling state. I can't concentrate. I make a move like chess. And then I yell checkmate. Um, and I was like, oh, what? Because I love chess. Right. And I was like, crazy. And so all my life, anytime I would hear a rapper mention a chess lyric, I would memorize it and hold on to it. Then later I became uh, a hip hop journalist. One of the first from the West Coast just, I think, one of the first period, you know, uh, from the 80s. If you were in the 80s, almost nobody was writing about hip-hop then. And um, I started asking rappers after the interview if they played chess. And many of them said yes. Bunches of them. So fast forward to one year, I'm in a juvenile hall. I'm supposed to talk about journalism as a career choice, and I'm bombing. These kids do not care about writing or journalism. I'm kind of wasting their time. And I had just started teaching my son chess. And I said, hey, how many of you guys uh, know how to play chess? Because I'm just thinking I'm going to waste time, right? Because I'm, I'm bombing as a public speaker in this moment. So I'm like, hey, if I can start teaching him chess, uh, you know what I mean? I can just buy my time and get up out of here. And most of the room raises their hand. I couldn't believe it. Like 85, 90% of the kids in the room raised their hand. These are incarcerated kids. I was like, no. So I said, all right, well, who... Thinks they're the best. Only the best. Keep your hand up. If you suck, I don't want to see your hand up. And so a few hands go down, but a lot stay up. I said, okay, okay. I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have a tournament. And whoever wins, I'll give one of my books. It was for my first book, Lyrical Swords. First game happens. These two black kids are playing. There's this white kid sitting to the left. And this dude gets ready to move his, move his, move his knight. And uh, the dude's like, the white kid sitting on the side's like, don't move your knight. And the dude looks, he goes, what? Ain't nobody asked you but to move, white boy. I'm about to win this game. And he moves the knight and loses his queen. I watch everybody in the room go, oh, white boy got knowledge, man. We got, hey, so how you know that? And, and he, his, his pecking order in, in the juvenile hall just raises up. I asked, who thinks they can win this whole thing? There was a kid in the back. He was about 300 pounds. 
He's like, I can win. Q was like, this ain't no sandwich eating contest fat boy. Shut up. Right. Cause this juvie, man, people, the kids aren't exactly the most polite. So people start laughing. He's like, no, no, I can win. I can win. I said, yo, leave him alone, man. If he can win, let him win. Sure enough, he won the tournament. I saw his pecking order in the social spectrum raise up. I'm leaving the thing. And I said, man, I said to myself, I said, how is it that these kids know how to play chess, but made life mistakes that got them locked up? What if you could teach kids how to play chess in a way that would make them think about their real life so they wouldn't even end up here? And like, I literally stopped on the stairs in the juvenile hall. I know exactly where I was in the juvie in San Francisco. And I stopped. I was in this I was in this hallway alone, uh, this stairwell alone, and I was standing under the fluorescent lights, and every rap lyric I ever remembered hit me at one time. And I was like, I got to do something with that. I'm going to use hip-hop to teach chess, use that, and then I was like, there I go. But it was an idea. It wasn't a perfected concept. So even when I created Hip Hop Chess Federation, when we first did our first big events with RZA and Jizza and Josh Waitskin, I didn't have a methodology to anything because I hadn't done all the homework. I just knew, okay, Moors, the Moors had a, had a role in chess coming into Europe. That was a big deal because I'm black and black people need to see themselves in the history of the game. So I, I got that. Okay, cool. Um, Maurice Ashley exists. Okay, I got that. Cool. Wu-Tang Clan. Okay, but what else? Right. And so I had to figure all of this stuff out. And so it, it has been like a, 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 a cultivating a philosophy through through my own internal research, as well as looking at history and culture. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I was going to save this for a little bit later, but um, I, I think it, we should probably, it makes sense to talk about your books here. Um, yeah, and yeah. so- the one I, I've seen, I've seen one, and I've, I've I was reading it yesterday and today. Uh, Bobby Bruce in the Bronx: The Secrets of Hip Hop Chess. Yeah, um, which uh, anyone can go and download for free at hiphopchess.blogspot.com. Yep. Um, but you also have a couple of other books that you were talking about: uh, Lyrical Swords, uh, Volumes One yeah. and Two. Volume One and Two. Yeah. And now you're yeah. working on a fourth book, or are there others? Yeah, I'm working on uh, a Dead Man's Diary right okay. now, and then I also wrote two books that are solely uh, jujitsu books. Okay. The Iron Hook Scroll and uh, the Cloud Scroll. Those are Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu techniques, um, and those are available at ironhookebook.blogspot.com. Yeah. Okay. So l- let's talk about the process of tying all of this together, because as you said, you know, knowledge is not something that that uh, unless you're a Buddha, uh, one suddenly. <laughs> You know, it just does, gets it, dropped it, on. It, it, yeah, it doesn't just snap on, right? It, it takes work. Um, <laughs> right, and, right, and you've right. been doing that work for a long time. So how how has that played out in your books? And 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 how do you see this link between spirituality, you know, in, in broadly considered, right? Not not just any one particular right, right. Uh, version, but but something like spirituality and and chess. Well, I would, I would, I would say it's more of a philosophy in chess, okay. right? Because spirituality and philosophy, those are razor. You know what I mean? It depends on how you write. The, the, that can be granularly whatever. For me, uh, I look at it as a philosophy because I've always tried to make something that it didn't matter what your faith was or if you had a faith to to kind of you know you know like me myself, I'm Muslim, right? I'm an Orthodox Muslim, um, but you don't need to be Muslim to glean from the chessboard, right? Like that's not, you know what I mean? It's not a Muslim thing. Anybody can do that, right? So um, um, it's about a philosophy um, and it's about, about you know, like Socrates said, um, I am not Greek nor am I Athenian, right? But I am a citizen of the world. I always, always, that, 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 that quote blew my mind. 
uh, at the time that I read it as a young adult. And, and I believe that that's a very valuable way to look at yourself and look at the world. And so I always hope that, that this fusion would do that. Right. So, um, chess is an international game, right? Jujitsu is an international sports tied to judo and wrestling, right? Uh, and, and, and hip hop is universal music, right? So, so even when you're looking at someone like RZA, right? Like when people say Wu Tang is forever, well, how come Wu Tang is forever as opposed to this group or that group or whatever? Dude, Wu Tang has connected itself to three infinite cultures, subcultures of the world, they're going to be, they have a much greater chance of being forever than other rap acts that, you know what I mean, are just for their city, whether it's New York or Compton or Oakland or whatever, right? They've tied them, they've bound their music to other ideas that are greater than themselves. And so the first thing I figured out was that when Bobby Fischer beats Boris Spassky, when Bruce Lee debuts uh, Enter the Dragon in, in, in New York and when DJ Cool Herc, you know, kind of starts throwing those first parties that, that become, you know, what we now know today as hip hop, that all happened around the same time in 1973, 1972, 73. That's this like, right. And it's happening right in New York. Right. So Bobby Fisher lives in Brooklyn. Cool Herc lives in, 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 in the West Bronx. Right. And this stuff starts kind of growing. And at the time, it was all very siloed, right? Like hip hop people and martial arts people and chess people weren't doing these things consciously together, but they were doing them together at the same time, whether they were aware of it or not. So, you know, someone might be practicing Tai Chi in the park. There's dudes playing chess right there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, The dudes are playing chess right there. And these two dudes are going to have a B-boy battle right across the street. All of this stuff was unintentionally cross-pollinating itself in inside hip-hop and things like that. And so the first way that you find it in hip-hop is like martial arts movements and philosophies kind of started um, spreading into the way that hip-hop itself was learned and taught, right? It was, it was you know, like if you, if you wanted to dance, like you could dance, but like who taught you, bro? You're a b-boy, who taught you? Oh, well, I was, I was taught by pop master fable. Okay. Well, now I know where you're from. I know what style, you know what I mean? What your, your movements are going to tend to be like, et cetera. The same way as if somebody, well, how do you play? Well, I usually play in the theme of Fisher or tall or Spassky. You're going to have a sense of what that means. Right. And so hip hop starts to kind of adapt these ways of, of being, and they start to permeate dance then they, they, they start to show up in the, in the DJ world. When DJ battles start happening, they start using uh, samples from Kung Fu films about style, about originality, about dominance, right? About skill level, about how hard you must practice. And those ethos become a whole part of every element of hip hop. I'm talking about b-boying, which is the dance. I'm talking about graffiti art. I'm talking about MCing. I'm talking about DJing, right? All of these things start to permeate hip hop. And so that I started looking at that once I figured out that Bobby Fisher, Bruce Lee and cool Herc all kind of like get their initial jump out into the world stage at the same time. I knew that that there was an authentic synergy that my mind wasn't crazy that I wasn't trying to just, you know, make some stuff that didn't fit fit. It really did fit. And then from there I had to start cultivating. What will the philosophy, what are you going to say? Okay, great. Wu-Tang clan, Bobby Fisher and, and, you know, Jet Li. Now what? 
that was what I had to figure out. And that's where the philosophies that come from the book were born. So yeah, let, let me drill down a little deeper on that because mm -hmm. one of the things that I have always found to be important for chess for me was using chess as a way to interrogate myself. And, and not only that- That is to, a great word, interrogate myself. I'm writing that down. It's also, Simone Weil talks about decreation, right? And she uses it in terms of a Judeo-Christian God and our relationship to it. But, you know, if you read a book like, like Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Where at the end of the book, what, what Siddhartha finds out is that apenticeship to anything can lead to enlightenment. Mm, Chess can so be a true. vehicle for that. And, and for me, you know, what, what I've admired about your work when I've read it and what I admire about uh, what I saw in the interview that we published is that chess can be seen as a way to work on self-creation. Yes. You know, yeah. you're, you're, you're doing something that is bigger than you. You know, even, you know, Magnus Carlsen can't possibly plumb the depths of chess as great as he is. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so you're, you're entering into something that is bigger than you. In some ways, you're letting it pass through you. Yeah, and, and you're humbled yeah. by it. I mean, yeah. I mean, some Damn. of us are some of us are more humbled than others. Um, me, certainly, very humbled very recently. <laughs> but, but I mean that that's what chess has always been for me. And and you know, I, I it sometimes it sounds hokey to to talk about it like that. But I mean that's right. that's real talk. That's that's what chess can be for people. And and that's what I loved about this interview where you and Rizzo are just talking about it. And you're talking about, you know, at the end, you're, you're talking about, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing now part of it was in the right, context right. of this, this um, near-death experience you had. Right. But right. You know, what does it mean to be a Diza? What does right. it mean to be a Muslim? What right. does it mean to be a chess player? Right. And, and you know, most of us don't ask us, ourselves these questions. Um, no, we we don't. And, and it's important. And I think you're right. You know what I mean? Chess is about self-interrogation. Why did I make that move instead of the other? Why didn't I see when my opponent moved this way instead of that? Right. And things like that. And I think that it's, it's, it's crucial. I also think, you know, and I mean, you know, I don't think anybody debates it, especially in a post COVID world, man, American schools are really not that good, man. <laughs> We need help, all right? Yeah. Like, no matter how good we thought we were, no matter how good we used to be, in this moment, we are not good. And I think everybody should be playing chess. Chess has proven to improve math skills and reading comprehension. People don't even know why. They have ideas. They don't know why. And that's okay. Get the kids on the board, right? Like, that self-interrogation, that reflection, that that extra thought about the, the benefits and the consequences of an action can really be the difference of life or death in a real life situation. You know, when, when, when I teach in juvenile hall and I've taught in juvenile hall on and off for many years, um, mostly on until now, um, one of the, you know, kids, well, why do I need to know chess? You know, blah, blah. and I'd be like, okay, well, you're here, right? You know me, right? Why you know me? Because you messed up. You know me because you did something you shouldn't have done. That's why you know me. Now, why did you make that decision? Why did you steal the car, grab the gun, sell the dope, whatever? Only you really know that, right? And you can validate it, say, yo, I was broke, you know, whatever. I didn't have no dad, whatever. But you made that decision at the end of the day. And the reason you know me is because I'm going to teach you how to think better. So that the next time you can make a better choice, you will. But you won't do it if you don't understand all your options. Maybe you thought selling dope was all you had in life. 
but I'm telling you, you don't. I'm telling you, you can only see A to C, and I'm telling you, you can see past Z if you listen to yourself. First, you're going to listen to me. Then you're going to listen to yourself. And so once they start figuring that stuff out, everything starts to change, right? Now, I've had kids who, you know, what is winning? What is winning? Sometimes winning can just be graduating high school. That's it. Just getting out alive. Sometimes it can be uh, one, one of the best kids I ever taught. He just wanted to, to graduate and, and work in sheetrock. And he's had a great life since. A great life. He was a dedicated, validated banger. Like I remember when I first met him, I, I came home and I told my ex-wife, I said, I met someone who was absolutely going to kill someone. Like for sure. And like he never did. Like me and him became cool. He went on to live a great life, you know, um, for other people, it may be college for other people. It may be starting a new business, but chess can help them figure that stuff out. Hip hop, not the hip hop stuff that you see. Listen, parents listening to this show, do not think that I am validating any of the insanity that you see in mainstream, uh, hip hop or radio, et cetera. Now, I can tell you, and you probably say it with a, a, a rolled eye in your head, that hip hop is much deeper than you think it is. The lyrics, the purpose, the way the music is made is very different than what you see, right? Like, you know, as a parent inside chess, chess is much different than what people see on the outside or think they see on the outside. Hip hop is the same, you know? And so, so let, let me, let me hop in here real quick. Why yeah, is that? Yeah. So, and, and here's why I said, not, not just because yeah. of, you know, yeah, big, no, no. big record companies trying to make money yeah. or, or, you know, people just yeah. trying to flip record. I mean, but there's a similarity here between hip hop as a, as a, as a self-discipline in the mm-hmm. way that you're describing it mm-hmm. and chess as, as something like a self-discipline, a way of creating a self uh, and a way yeah. of undoing a self in some ways that, that, that I'm, I'm, I, in my former life, no, that's real. I, in my former life, I was working on a PhD in philosophy. These are some of the things <laughs> I was thinking about. So th- this is why I'm really interested in it. No wonder we're vibing right that's now. Right. So you know what I'm I get it. Why, why are these parts of both chess and hip hop, not part of the big hegemonic the bigger picture? understanding? Yeah. That's why a really why good do people question. not see this? I, I, it's so weird. I think on the chess side, to be honest, for North America specifically, that we suffered when Bobby Fischer spun out of control. I agree. You know, like when you look at, and people forget, man, when you look at when Bobby Fischer plays fast on PBS, all of the people in the streets watching him play like at a, in front of a TV store, right? The whole block is shoulder to shoulder with people. You can't get that right now. I think that something happened to our sense of our not ownership, but our connectivity to chess fell out when he fell to us, right? And then I think that because we, we as a collective American culture didn't understand how to convey maybe what chess could and should be beyond a winning socio-political tool, you know what I mean, against the Russians or whatever, that we didn't know what to do with it, you know what I mean? And it, and it kind of faltered out over time, you know? Um, I think on the hip-hop side, to be just brutally honest, I think every time young Black kids make music, America gets scared, right? Like, <laughs> if, you look at, if you look at jazz, what they said about jazz in the beginning, they'll Same be like, thing. watch out, yep. that jazz is crazy. If you look before that, blues, watch out for the blues, you know what I'm saying? And so hip-hop is the same way. Like, nothing has been scarier to the North American mainstream than teenage 
than teenage men and young boys saying what they think about life in the world. That has always terrified the the North American mainstream. So that's where we are. Okay. You know, that's where we are. You've done a lot of advocacy work and, and talking about your work in, in juvenile halls and detention mm-hmm. centers. Um, talk a little bit more about why you think chess is such a potent tool in that setting. Oh, I think it's a potent tool in that setting because kids in juvenile hall mainly feel forgotten, right? They mainly feel invisible, right? Um, I can't tell you how many teenagers are in uh, juvenile hall right now, but everybody should Google that and think about how they never thought about them before I just said Google it, (laughs) all right? Like, they're in there all the time. They're all races, religions, whatever, and it's so unbelievable because so many of them are so brilliant. Some of the smartest kids I've ever met in my life are in juvenile hall. I met them in juvenile hall. I'll never forget one of my last visits to juvenile hall. I sit down with this kid. He got dreadlocks. He looks rugged. Okay. He looks rugged. He's got dreads. He's, he's got lots of lean muscle. He's built like Bruce Lee. He's a little bit taller than me. I'm six, three. And he sits down in the chair and he just looks at me and I'm sitting there looking at him. And um, I ask him his name. He tells me his name. What's up? Whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's a very kind of like we're sizing each other up kind of conversation. So then <laughs> so then I'm like, so you read? You read books? He's like, yeah, I read all the time. I was like, what are you reading right now? Tell me one book you're reading right now. He's like, oh, I just finished Stephen Hawking's uh, whatever, a book I had never read. Then he goes, I just, uh, I'm in the middle of the four agreements, uh, you know, this Toltec philosophy thing, uh, a book I had read. And then I'm also reading, he told me another, and I thought he was lying. I looked at him. I was silent for like five seconds. I was like, he didn't read all that. So I was like, all right. So, and then I started, he he started breaking it all down. And then, so we played some chess. We had some good games. Next day he comes back. I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, what's up? I was like, so, uh, what are you a junior or a senior? He's like, Oh man, I'm a, I'm a freshman. You know, he's so big. I thought he was a senior. He was, I'm a freshman, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to graduate. I don't have enough credits. I'm, I'm, I'm locked up here. I'm not. And I was like, yo, look at this brilliant undisciplined mind and all that it could be achieving for him, his family, his, his community for America, the world, the tech sector, but they will never know him. They will never know his name because he is embroiled in a system that is pulling him down before he even has a chance to blossom. And so um, this is troubling. You know, one of the best chess players I ever taught was a girl, Um, a young, fiery-eyed, blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl who was like the toughest girl in the hall at the time. And um, I remember when, when she came in and I taught my first day, she just looked at me like, this is all trash. And I believe none of it. Like she just did not care. Like she was only in there to get out of herself for a little bit. You know what I mean? To stretch mm-hmm. her arms, whatever. The next day she comes in, killed every girl on the table, every girl on the board. She was just like, doof, doof, doof. and she was like, uh, I gave all the all the girls a copy of my book, and and then so she came back and she would ask questions. When you talk about uh, the poison pond, you know, blah blah. When you talk about like she was no joke, um, but unfortunately, when you work in the juvenile halls like this, one of the things, like unless you're a part of the juvenile hall system, when these kids go out, you just don't talk to them again. Like you don't you don't have, and you're not supposed to have that kind of connectivity, right? Like you know, oh, give me a call after you get out. Like that's not how this is supposed to really roll. So like I get these brief, intense, engaging moments with these kids, and then 
they're off in the world wherever they go. You know what I mean? Like sometimes they get sent to another place, another city, another state. Sometimes they're just locked up forever and just get transferred to a prison because they did something super heinous. I always ask for the kids that have done the biggest crime. So a lot of the kids that I taught were were dope dealers, murders, you know what I'm saying? Uh, attempted murders, you know what I'm saying? Stuff like that. Um, but some of them were just kids who messed up. You know, they smoked a little weed, they stole something they shouldn't have or whatever. And um, I'm telling you, um, we, we, we need to do better by uh, the girls of America and the world and teach more chess. We need to invest. If Wherever you live in the world, go Google where uh, kids are learning chess and invest in them. Donate to them. Give them some boards. Give them some books. Help fly somebody out who matters. Right? We need to, we need to do this. Right? Um, same for, for the Black and Latino community. But anywhere you see chess existing, a chess teacher um, um, who you vetted and you know isn't a weirdo because it's important <laughs> that our that our kids are not around weirdos, right? Like invest in them, help them. Like it's not about Hip Hop Chess Federation for the record doesn't exist anymore. Right. But, I was going to ask you about that. Right. So uh, you know the cliff notes is I got divorced. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so <laughs> so when when you, when you get divorced, stuff gets divided, and it came to this point where, um, you know, I had to give up the org, but I didn't care. You know what I'm saying? Like, like collapsing the org isn't a collapsing of my work. Collapsing the org uh, is not an end to what I do uh, or my life's purpose or, or my impact. You know, that actually was a blessing in disguise because by shutting it down, I found a new way, right? You know, there's this book called The Obstacle is the Way. It's a book on Stoic philosophy by a guy named Ryan Holiday. Everyone should get it for their own children because they're, we're walking into grimy times in 2021, right? And so we need to start learning of how to use the obstacle as the way. So once um, everything started coming up and, you know, the, the judge was like, look, either your ex-wife is going to have to give the org to you. You're going to have to give the org to her or I got to kill it. And I was like, kill it, kill it. So it's dead. And, uh, you know, but like they say, truth crushed to the earth. Well, what? It will rise again. I got a new org, new purpose, new passion coming in 2021 soon. Perfect. Well, we will, uh, when, when you, when it is up and running, let us know and we'll, you'll be the first. We'll put it up on chess life online. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me talk. Uh, let, let me ask you a little bit about the podcast because you've been doing. Mm-hmm. Is it weekly or is it basically? Yeah, weekly, it's right? weekly. Yeah, yeah, it's weekly. It's been weekly for like the last year and some change. Before that, it was like once or twice a month because I was just trying to figure out what the hell I was doing. I, I was going to say because 146 episodes and counting, <laughs> that's a lot of work. So let's talk about the, the Bishop Chronicles, and you've had guests from Brother Ali to Ralph Gracie to yeah. Doctor Diam Shabazz. Um, yeah, I mean, just all sorts of people and. Tell, yeah. tell us about its history, why you're doing it, and and what you hope to be doing with it in the future. Well, yeah, no, thank you, man. Bishop Chronicles is a passion project that is turning into something more real uh, by the day. Um, it's actually the, the the originator of the idea was uh, was was Mike Realm. He's my producer, mm-hmm. right? And he also took the cover shot, which, which is, is dope a and stunning, <laughs> isn't it? Stunning photo. It's a cool shot. Right? He did a great cool job. Shot. Shout out to Mike. Big yeah, the Mike pod. Realm is a man. Yeah, at Mike Realm, R-E-L-M. He's hot. But the deal is, is that he and I have known each other since the battle era days. So I used to host these things called the, the ITF, International Turntables Federation. They were DJ battles. And Mike was a young, burgeoning battle DJ who's devastating. And, he, and we, made, we remained friends for many, many, many years. And anyway, he was talking to me one day. 
And he was asking about something that dealt with hip hop because I am a very uh, well vetted hip hop historian. And and he was asking me something about hip hop. And I told him about something I had seen. He was like, hey, man, have you ever done a podcast? I was like, what's a podcast? He was like, you know, like you can record it. Like he goes, you're a good storyteller, man. You should talk about this. So that's how Bishop Chronicles started. And we didn't really know what the hell we were doing other than that we wanted to do it. Um, And then about a year ago, um, or maybe longer, uh, maybe two years, uh, he also DJs for the far side. They're a very famous hip hop group uh, known for passing me by and bigger fish and some other things. And so he was like, uh, he's their tour DJ. And so they started Farside TV. They were like, why don't you bring Bishop Chronicles over with us? And we just, you know, I said, okay, well, if we're going to start doing it with Farside, I need to take it more seriously and try to be more, more dedicated. And so we talk about hip hop, chess. We talk about jujitsu. We talk about health stuff, meditation stuff, because it's called Bishop Chronicles. He's like, you just have a really weird life. You bounce around and bump into crazy people and have funny stories. So just tell those stories and then we'll start figuring it out. So um, you know, follow at Bishop Chronicles on IG. We're on Instagram, YouTube, et cetera, you know, and, and, and it's fun, man. So I want to talk to you about your chess game today. Yeah. yeah. How Let's is talk. your game? What are you doing to work on it? How do things stand? Ooh. Okay. First of all, uh, if I could send you uh, a moving image, it would look like a dumpster fire being dragged down, down a river. Uh, my game is not, my game is not is not devastating. It's it's not devastating for for a few for a few reasons. Um, one is um, I love the game, but I'm not actually that adept, honestly, at at understanding algebraic notation. Like that's a real hurdle for me. Like I get the first few things, then I'm like, what? I get lost. So when, you know, whenever I see a chess book, I can look at it and I'll be like, eh, I don't get it. But what has been interesting for me is looking at books like, um, and I wish you would do more. Bruce Pandolfini made this book called chess, the Q and a way. Mm-hmm. That's me, baby. That's how I learn. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's my way. So, um, you know, but, but, but the truth is I, I, I made this commitment, um, going into 2021, I'm going to study regularly, um, at Mechanics Club Online. Yeah, so talk a little, they're, they're doing some interesting things. What, what will you be doing with the Mechanics Club? I'm really not doing anything but shutting up and learning. Um, which, which is hard <laughs> enough in itself, yeah. Right, right. Um, really what happened is, 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 is um, man, this is so crazy. So I went and did a thing on chess and life strategies at um, University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. And before the talk, uh, there was a dinner and one of the guys at that dinner became one of the main dudes over at, uh, mechanics. And so he's like, yo dude, I just moved out here. You know, we should probably try to do, find a way to do some stuff. And so then, um, that led to me making some visits over there with Abel and, and, um, Judith Starre and, and Paul Whitehead. And I, I had actually went there a year or two before taking some of my kids from hip hop chess federation that were John O'Connell over there, you know, um, for a tour. And so I already kind of knew some of them, but dude, it's just been really awesome. And so we've been talking about right before the lockdown started, we were actually working on, on doing a co-event. Um, and so, you know, um, Paul Whitehead is so hilarious and, 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 and brilliant. 
Um, and, and, and so is Judith. And I was just like, you know, I need to just stay quiet for a bit and get better with these people, not just because they are a huge part of American chess history and, 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 and the Bay area history, but because they're awesome human beings, you know what I mean? So I was just like, yo, get to the end of your book, which I'm almost done. And then, you know, start rocking with them. So I'm, I'm probably going to head over there and start taking some classes and, and, and just, you know, lift, lifting my level, you know, I've always thought that that, that sort of work, like studying self-improvement, um, mm-hmm. is, is one of the, the best things that chess taken seriously can teach a person that, that sort of the need to, and, and I, I hate using the word inter- you know, interrogate the self, right, but, right. No, but, it's good, but though. that's what it is. I mean, you know, when yeah. you are studying, you are pulling apart all of your preconceptions and you're realizing that the things you thought were true may not be true at all. Um, big time. Right. And, 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 and there's, there's such value in that, 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 Again, as part of the sort of dominant image of chess, we we just don't see people talking about like doing the work is, is everything. It's man. everything. It's the, and, the and, process. And when we is say everything, everything, the joy, the joy Absolutely. is there too, right? It's not just like tedious, tedious, whatever. It's the joy, yeah. right? And 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 it's the same thing with martial arts, right? Like right. exactly. You know, I often tell people, I say, you know, so like, what is it that makes you take jujitsu or kung fu or karate or boxing or whatever, wrestling, whatever. I said, at some point you had to admit to yourself that as much as you think you might be able to defend yourself, that there's a lot you could learn. You had to accept that before you even go sign the waiver, before you even, you know, say, okay, I'm going to go to mechanics club and figure it out. You have to acknowledge I am not the chess player. I am not the, 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 the self-defense person or whatever, or the dancer, right. That I thought I could be, or should be. So I'm going to go to this person and learn. That's a huge step. You know what I mean? That's a huge step. And there's a lot of joy. Um, when you find yourself doing better than you ever thought you might. Yeah. Humility is not a typical American virtue. (laughs) No, 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 but it, but it, but it is, um, it always pays off. It does. You know, it's very rare that humility doesn't pay off. Very rare. So we've talked a little bit about your next projects, but uh, let, I want to ask you about one in particular from the past, and then I want to talk about what's what's happening yeah, now. Um, sure. In 2014, you had this amazing exhibition at the World Chess Hall of Fame, and we used um, some of the photos in the yeah. in the cover story. So tell us a little bit about Living Like Kings and how it came to be, and and why yeah. you think it was so well received. Yo, so this is a crazy story. So in this moment. Right now, I don't even remember how I ended up on the cover of Chess Life, but I was happy that I was. 2012. I'm at the HHCF spot teaching jujitsu. I get a call from um, Jennifer Shahadi, who is just like the Mother Teresa of chess. I swear, man. Like, she is like a moonwalking chess angel that still doesn't get enough props. And she gets props all the time, but she still doesn't get enough props, right? And so she calls me and she's like, hey, I'm on the phone with my friend, um, Susan, who at the time was the director of the World Chess Hall of Fame and, you know, wanted to talk for a little bit. She wanted to ask you about chess and hip hop. I was like, all right, cool. I'm always making time for, for anything Jen is talking about. So we talk. And then, so then Susan's like, well, would you be interested in coming to the World Chess Hall of Fame? Maybe we can talk about doing an exhibit. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's talk about that. You know what I'm saying? Cause like, I'm like, she's not doing an exhibit. Um, so then, um, a few weeks later she calls back and she's like, all right. So, you know, uh, we really want you to come out, you know? And I was like, Will you get a will you get a will you get a plane ticket for my boy Mike? You know what I'm saying? 
like he, he works with me on artistic stuff because I'm like, no way they're going to like let Mike come. They're like, yeah, sure. We got Mike's ticket. What's up? <laughs> I'm like, huh. so then me and Mike fly out there and we go. And so we sit down and um, Jen is there. Susan is there. A lot of the other uh, amazing people at the World Chess Hall of Fame are there. And like, she's like, okay, well, tell me about the relationship between hip hop and chess. And I just like did like a knowledge vomit dump on everybody in the room, like, and I was like, they're not going to like any of that. And they were like, this could be a show. (laughs) I was like, okay. So we put it together. It took two years to get it together. Uh, I went back and forth there. I also went to a lot of the schools in and around St. Louis. Um, And uh, then uh, I had RZA come out. Uh, when we did the opening and it was straight up bonkers. I remember the, it was a very intense opening because the, the uprising around Mike Brown was the same time as the opening, like literally like same day. So there was massive tension going on. And like, I remember rumblings and grumblings inside the hall of fame. Like maybe we shouldn't have it. Maybe this is not the right time for uh, an exhibit like this. And so um, somebody uh, had called me, not Susan, somebody else had called me and was like, Oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this, blah, blah. I said, look, let me tell you something right now. Right. That city is about to be going crazy because the riots had not started, but the tension was there. You know, people were always on the news about it, whatever I said. Right. And what's going on? I said, you have all these black people who feel like their knowledge and their cultural contributions are being ignored. You're going to have the one spot in the entire city where it's going to be celebrated. Nothing's going to happen to your building like at all. I promise you the show should go on. The show went on. When it happens, me and Riza are standing out in front. And earlier we had gone, we had done like a talk that day with Susan. Uh, I think that's on YouTube somewhere. And, uh, you know, city's on fire, stuff's going crazy. There's helicopters, people are moving. And I was just like, yo, this is crazy. But the line around the block to get into that event was insane. People could not get in. And I'm watching people on Twitter go, I've never not been able to get into the World Chess Hall of Fame. This is insane. And they're at the end of that line. You're seeing it rap. And I think even the people inside the World Chess Hall of Fame had no idea what I was bringing when I brought it. But I knew it was going to be that nuts because I had already done it. I already done, you know, in 2007, I already did it with Riza and Josh and all these other rappers, you know, all the other years. Um, And a lot of the events that we throw, there will be rap battles, uh, 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 b-boy battles sometimes we have mats let people squab you know what i'm saying like so i already knew what was coming they didn't have that idea and i think it you know it broke the it's the second highest opening day for an exhibit the only thing bigger than that is bobby fisher which is which was nuts to me because i remember going upstairs his exhibit was above ours i remember standing there the floor is bumping <laughs> under my feet. And I'm looking at Bobby Fisher's chair. I'm looking at some of his boards and I'm like, I cannot believe I'm here right now. I cannot believe I was just by myself. And I was just like, I cannot believe this. And I was so grateful, you know, like it's been a hard road. A lot of times mainstream chess people haven't really checked for me, to be honest. You know what I'm saying? I think that I'm confusing and frightening to a lot of them and I get it right. Uh, but I come in peace and I, and I, and, and I have good intentions, but, and, and I thought that in that moment I was going to feel 
like like victorious, like that's right, damn it. You know what I'm saying? I made it and you didn't think, but that's not how I felt. I felt extreme serenity and gratitude. I was grateful to be in the World Chess Hall of Fame. I was grateful that Jen trusted in me enough to, to, to connect me to Susan and that Susan and her team, you know, trusted me enough to work with me to put that, to put that event together. But I felt supremely humbled and nothing but like a serene gratitude, man. And, and I'm grateful to all of them, you know, for, for what that, for what that, um, exhibit was and, and, and the ripple effect that it, that it, that it, that it gave inside the traditional chess community. My goal then was to do two things. One, I wanted someone who really thought they knew chess to walk out going, Oh my God, I didn't know nothing about that. And I wanted someone who really knew hip hop to be like, what are they going to talk about hip hop and come out and go, Oh my God, I didn't know nothing about that. And so the, the, the day before we kind of had a, like a private opening for, for people. And a lot of people from the St. Louis chess club went over there. And when they came back, I asked one of the guys, I said, Hey dude, what'd you think? And he was like, amazing. I learned so much. I didn't know any of that. And I was like, mission accomplished. That's all I wanted, man. I wanted that cross-cultural, right? Like it's not about a one-sided uh, thing. It's about a conversation. And, and that conversation started for a large part because of, because of their compassion and their open-mindedness. Yeah. Anyone who is interested in this, who hasn't, uh, who, who doesn't know what the exhibit looked like, you can check it out on Google, um, mm-hmm. on the St. Louis chess club. Uh, I'm sorry, the world chess hall of fame Flickr page. There yeah. are albums devoted to the opening and also showing, um, pretty much everything inside the exhibit. Um, really, yeah. really amazing stuff. Definitely worth uh, taking some time to check out. It was out. great. It was uh, great. So this is this is one of the big projects you've done in the past. But now you've got you've got your book, which yeah. is almost done. And then what's next for you? So I actually um, so I I came out to London earlier in the year, and um, or no, I think on my first visit to London, which would have been August of twenty nineteen. I went to this place called the Somerset House, and Somerset House is this cool—it's uh, a very cool uh, museum, right? But they did this thing, bro, where where they showed straight out of Compton outdoors on this big screen, and then they had all these food trucks and they had all these people come through. I mean, it's an old movie. People had already seen Straight Outta Compton, dude. It was packed. It was crazy, and there were all these people. And I was like, yo, I was like. I want to do a hip hop event at a museum out here, you know, because hip hop is global. So I'm working on a, um, on an exhibit that's going to deal with hip hop and it's going to deal with, um, chess and some other stuff. Uh, you know, Susan and I actually teamed up with Mike, did another exhibit in 2018 called respect hip hop style and wisdom that was done at the Oakland, uh, Museum of California, a hundred thousand people came out to that. A hundred thousand people. We had chess boards. We had a film that ran in perpetuity through the entire six month exhibit that had chess and Bruce Lee and Kung Fu and RZA all over it. We had like eight chess boards. One time, uh, uh, Rochelle Ballantyne and, and, and Jen came out and did a whole simul thing bonkers. You know what I mean? So, uh, uh, and I, I don't think that chess I mean, I, I don't know outside of the World Chess Hall of Fame. I'm saying outside of the World Chess Hall of Fame, I don't know where chess has gotten that kind of shine inside of, you know what I mean? Right. Inside of a regular American museum. And man, people were on the boards every day. It was crazy in that place, man. We had a low rider. 
<laughs> it was nuts, man. Um, and so, you know, I intend to do much more curating for museums. Um, but I know in COVID, you know, museum shrug, like ain't nobody going nowhere. But, you know, I'm, I'm putting stuff together uh, on that level. And uh, I'm excited about that, you know, very excited. So where can our uh, our listeners, where can they find you on social media? So on social media, I'm at, on Twitter, at Banjoko, B-A-N-J-O-K-O. It's like Banjo Knockout. Adisa. Um, and on, um, on, on Instagram, I'm at Bishop Chronicles. And, um, those are the best places to hit me. I'm, I'm, I'm sadly addicted to social media. And so uh, I'm having a problem, but I'm working on it. And we're, we're so, taking medicine. We'll all be better <laughs> yeah, someday. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm working on that. Those are the best ways to hit me. And of course, if you just go to bishopchronicles.com, you can subscribe and, you know, we can be in touch that way. Perfect. Adisa, thank you so much. This has been Really interesting, and I think um, not only the article, but just the conversation we've had. I think, uh, I think it'll open some eyes. So I'm- no, it, it will. Thank you. I'm, I'm truly humbled, man. I'm, I'm truly humbled. You you don't understand how when I first started, people in hip hop, chess, and martial arts were like, "What is he talking about?" And now people are starting to get it. I'm starting to see that intercultural stuff because it ain't about me. I like to see people connect. I like to see ideas connect, and I like to see. Um, through whether it's chess, music, or martial arts, whatever helps us acknowledge our own humanity and 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 and, and respect the humanity of another is something I'm with. So I want to thank you for having me on the show, Jenny. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And all right, uh, all right. have a good day. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.